Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I sat down with Janai Marinkovic, who's an ISARCA member, and we discussed the recent ISARCA report, State of Cybersecurity 2021. We walked through some of the insights that were illuminated in the report, some of which included that the industry is significantly understaffed, retention of talent, as well as formal education and training associated with entering the cybersecurity workforce. If you're keen to listen to the breakdown of this report, then this episode is for you. So please keep listening. Okay, so Janae, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. I'm excited to speak to you because your energy is infectious. It's the few minutes that I've been speaking to you this morning. But also because we are going to dive into the recent ISARCA report that's been deployed. And some of the key insights are quite interesting. But before we dive on into that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So can you please talk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Sure, sure. A little bit of back. First off, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here to talk with you um, about uh, about the survey. Uh, A little bit of background on myself. Um, I'm a cybersecurity and tech executive with about 20 years of experience uh, designing, building, operating global uh, Fortune 100 cybersecurity capabilities at scale. So I've done everything from risk management to security research to threat management, defense and forensics. And I'm actually one of the few people out there that have experience in this world called converged security. And that's where you combine physical security and then crisis management capabilities. I'm currently in a uh, technology advisory board for an award-winning design firm called Beyond. I'm a founder of an apprenticeship program called The Next CISO. I'm also the founder of a think tank called the GRC Center for Intelligent Ecosystems, where we analyze the security implications of artificially intelligent uh, thinking systems. I'm a member of the ISACA Emerging uh, Trends Working Group. I just finished a lecture today uh, talking about uh, visibly diverse uh, organizations and and how do we address the the skills gap um, of, of today. And then uh, finally, I uh, am one of the 13, identified as one of the 13 top women uh, in cybersecurity defense by Information Security Magazine and a finalist for the CTO of the Year Award in Women in IT. And so like my background, how do I, I got started is as a kid, I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. That was my deal. <laughs> um, but uh, what happened is, is that I ended up going to a trip uh, to a bookstore and I happened upon this old magazine called 2600 and fell in love with cybersecurity and and digital forensics. And so I had the opportunity to start working for uh, an international investigations firm called Carlo Guerra. And then I had the chance of building cybersecurity at companies like DirecTV and Electronic Arts, and then became the chief technology officer for a design company um, and chief information security officer for a design company. And then finally moved to the company I'm working with right now, which is Tyro Security, where I help uh, companies build out end-to-end cybersecurity capabilities. Uh, um, and ultimately led me to working on, on building and founding this apprenticeship program called the Nexiso, uh, which helps uh, uh, ultimately uh, identify uh, and help uplift and amplify women and uh, people of color so that we can get them into the world of cybersecurity and GRC and ready and fit for purpose day one. 
Whoa. Okay. That that is a lot of stuff. It's pretty cool though. Uh, you've definitely you've done a lot of things, which I really really like because I think sometimes as well people forget that when you do different things, you have different experiences. You wrap all that knowledge and you bring it forward to the things that you're doing day to day. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's diversity, uh, you know. So, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. I don't want to like blow it on diversity and monocultures and so forth. But the more diverse our background is, the more experiences we have, and that's going to be absolutely key, kind of moving into this future world. Hundred percent. So, a couple of things with the twenty six hundred magazine. What was in there that really sort of sparked your interest? That you sort of were like, wow, I really want to work in this cyberspace. Sure. Um, you know, so there were several uh, articles that started and I mean, this was back in like 97, 98. So. <laughs> and, um, you know, so they, they talked about a couple of things. One was phone hacking, uh, which was really big oh, at the freaking. time. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow, that <laughs> is old school. Myself. Totally forgot about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. OK, cool. <laughs> You know, so uh, there is that um, ham radio, uh, you know, was really big at the time as well. So I ended up finding myself at things like ham radio fests and, and so forth, um, you know, but the but really it was the idea of understanding um, technology and ultimately reverse engineering ways um, of exploiting that technology that really got me going, which kind of went back to why I really wanted to be a forensics pathologist, which is weird. But, um, you know, it's I, I wanted to understand, you know, how how somebody passed, uh, you know, what caused those problems, how you would detect that in the human system. And the translation from that into digital forensics was, was rather seamless for me. So I know you spoke before around the next size. I want to loop back on that, but I want to sort of get into, I want to get into this report, like really going through it. Cause I did read the report and some things were quite interesting in terms of the different viewpoints, yeah. but I, okay. So let's, Let's start from the beginning, because like you said, I don't want to blow it too early. Uh, so one of the report covers cybersecurity resourcing. Now, this is really interesting because I hear two sides of the coin. So people in the industry saying we don't have enough people, and then the other people saying we've got enough people, but they don't have the relevant skills. Uh, so the statistics show that cybersecurity staffing is significantly understaffed. Yes. Yeah and somewhat understaffed. So let's start here. So talk me through this. This is always a curly one that pops up um, in this space as well. Uh, but what what's, what's your thoughts? And then what do you think that our sort of plan is as an industry to recruit more talent? Sure, sure. So we've got a couple of things kind of going on here. You know, like you mentioned, the differing perceptions that were properly staffed or that were understaffed. And look, the reality is, is that all organizations across the board are understaffed, period. Um, we do not have enough trained staff to address the problems of today, and we certainly don't have the, the trained staff to deal with the problems of tomorrow. As you mentioned, 61% of survey, survey respondents said that the security teams are, are, are understaffed. Um, you know, so when we look at things, we've got to not just look at the road activities that we see general cybersecurity capabilities doing. We need to consider the increased risks as a result of like these highly complex and integrated supply chains, um, you know, that we're seeing today, right? We're seeing manifest today in terms of those problems. We've got to look at things like um, emergent technology and the way that you design security uh, and control structures around thinking artificially intelligent systems is very, very different than the way that you would say, for instance, uh, secure a simple web application. 
And there's just not enough people in the industry today to help all companies and industries and governments across the board protect and defend these digital ecosystems. And quite frankly, the people now, you know, that are ultimately under their charge. Um, you know, so we've got the force, you know, we've got a lot of things kind of going on right now in that, you know, we have uh, a lot of people that are trained at the upper level of the scale, um, you know, but we simply do not have um, enough people uh, at the, you know, at the entry level that are coming into the world of cybersecurity. And, you know, we've got some other problems there in that we have a lot of people who are interested. Right. We've got a lot of people who would like to make that leap into becoming, um, you know, cybersecurity and GRC people. Um, but uh, and we'll talk about this also a little bit later. Um, you know, a lot of companies simply don't want to hire junior people for a variety of different reasons. You know, so on one hand, uh, you know, we have all of these open positions and we need to bring people in. You know, but on the, uh, you know, and we've got people who are interested, but on the other hand, we're not willing to bring those people in because one is uh, uh, you are required to invest a lot of time and effort bringing a junior person up to speed. You know, so it takes six to seven months to get somebody who doesn't have experience in the world of cybersecurity to the point that they're actually taking work off of the plate as somebody who's um, more senior. Um, you know, so uh, and not only that, but you're dealing with risk. You know, so if I'm bringing somebody on, I'm already oversubscribed. And uh, on top of that, I need to train this person and we end up getting breached because of that. Uh, you know, a lot of companies simply aren't willing to to take the risk to bring these junior people on board. Um, you know, so in terms of, uh, you know, how do we ultimately formulate these plans? Um, you know, what are some of the things that, uh, you know, we're going to ultimately need to do? Um, you know, uh, a couple of things. One is you've got colleges, universities, boot camps, apprenticeships and mentorships and internships that are all forming to kind of help in this very decentralized way solve the problems. Um, you know, the organ, you know, some organizations um, are trying to help, uh, you know, build these more well-rounded candidates, you know, by training non-security staff who are interested in moving into security roles. I believe that 43 percent of the, uh, uh, you know, the people who responded to the survey indicated that that's the, the tact that they're taking. 37 percent were saying, hey, let's increase the usage of contract employees or outside consultants. Definitely seeing that. 23% said, hey, let's increase the use of reskilling programs, which I'd love to be able to dive in a little bit um, in, in a bit. And then 22% said increasing the use of performance-based training to build hands-on skills. You know, so what ultimately that all says is that there's not one quick way of, of dealing with these, you know, the shortage and ultimately how, how to solve it. Um, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, I think that that starts to identify the tension between, uh, you know, do we uh, are we understaffed or are we somewhat understaffed? Yeah, this is where it gets really interesting as well, because then if you see like a, a job ad, it's like you have to have 10 years of experience and this and that. It's like, well, where, how, how is that possible? And so as a result of people seeing those types of job advertisements, they're getting deterred. Or I've seen a, various people speak to me and say, I've done some, you know, in, I don't know, quite a very quick course to get into cyber and I'm not a cyber expert yet, but then people don't want to take me on. So how are we sort of... How are we addressing that problem? Because there's reports like the Osaka one that are saying we don't have enough people. And then people are then trying to get into the field, but then employers don't really want to hire them. And I get it because they feel overwhelmed, they don't have the time, they feel like they can't get their head above the water. But then I, I understand that, but then you still have to make a move regardless or else we're going to get to, I don't know, the next few years and we're going to have no one left because everyone's going to be burnt out and they're going to be over it. 
<laughs> so that, that that that's all true, uh, and and it's it it really is difficult as as a hiring authority. I I understand and I empathize. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, you've got a couple of problems, um, you know, boot camps present this problem sometimes and certainly just taking a course and actually oftentimes just coming out of college is that you're not ready day one. There is so much that you have to be able to understand in order to be productive inside a cybersecurity or GRC uh, program. You know, so, uh, yes, uh, you know, companies need to widen and bring more people on board. Um, but if you don't have enough capacity inside of a company to ultimately address that, to mentor, mm. to train, um, it's not just about the technical skills, the human skills, and at this point are becoming oftentimes more important, um, you know, than some of the hands-on skills. Though A lot of those things people simply lack. Um, and so when you bring that person on board or people on board, you're making the leaders and the team leads um, less productive, which means that you're increasing risk. And if you don't have another way of kind of balancing those scales, then you end up in trouble. You know, so what that means is, is that we need to have more on the, you know, job training programs where uh, actual client work, actually working inside of a corporation, but under, under um, you know, people who know how to get you up to speed and get you. Uh, properly trained is is really one of the key ways that we're going to be able to do this because the onesie twosie things of me bringing on somebody and mentoring, um, you know, uh, uh, boot camps that uh, do a good job at making sure that you have some of the hands on skills but don't necessarily effectively prepare you to work inside of a corporation, don't necessarily prepare you for how do I take my results and present them in, a, in an attractive way that an executive can understand and digest, understanding mm. the politics. Um, understanding, um, you know, when you're dealing with cybersecurity, you're dealing with some pretty heavy topics um, mm -hmm. and emotions run pretty wild. You know, so understanding how to de-escalate, how to negotiate, right? A lot of those human-related skills also kind of come into the picture as well. So apprenticeships and making sure that, you know, you can get people with some level of um, on-the-job training before they come to a company, I think, is is one of the ways that we can deal with it. And then, uh, obviously, there needs to be a wholesale effort, and I, and I see that happening, of, you know, stopping this whole thing of you need, you know, for a junior position, I need to have five years' experience in CISSP. Mm, I know. I, I'm just smiling and nodding because I've heard all of these things. I like, yeah, de-escalating 100%. A lot of ego as well that seems to fly around in this space. Uh, one of the things that I'm sort of hearing that you say is it doesn't feel like all the reports, even last year's report says the similar stuff, right? Just the numbers have changed. And if you go to any conference, everyone says the same sort of thing. What do you think is the bottom line? Like, what's the reality? We keep saying we're understaffed, we don't have enough people, and because most companies now are built on technology, which ultimately needs security to be wrapped around it, do you just think that we're just never going to get there because the same stuff pops in, uh, pops up time and time again, and it doesn't really feel like we're moving the needle, if, if at all, or it even feels like we're going in reverse? <laughs> uh, certainly, if you watch the news, you feel like we're going in reverse, you know, so we're seeing more and more uh, large scale security breaches happen. And, uh, you know, often uh, a lot of that is happening because and I, I, we talked about it a little bit before we have these incredibly complex interconnected supply chains that did not exist 
um, the way that they did in the past. Um, so our attack surface is uh, is increasing. It's more interconnected. We've got more devices that are, especially when you focus in, you know, again, bringing in emergent like things like sensors, um, you know, so all of that is, is, is making it, you know, far more difficult. So now what we are seeing is an increase in automation that's ultimately going to help. Um, but automation is not, uh, you know, a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all of these problems. Um, you know, so no, I, I do believe that at some point we're going to come to some, you know, equaling level where we, uh, you know, can start addressing these issues. Um, but what it is going to take is a global effort of, of upskilling and getting people who are currently not in the world of cybersecurity and getting them trained into, um, you know, this, this industry. Uh, when we look at the world of automation, automation is, is taking people's jobs, you know. So um, I actually live in rural California. And so I can tell you right now that automation is killing jobs out here. And so what this is, is it's opening up this very unique opportunity of bringing people who think differently into our industry, but whose mindsets are actually really similar. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, a nurse, a landscape architect, a mechanic. Um, when you look at a nurse and what a nurse has to deal with day in and day out, they deal with uh, protection and defense systems. Um, they have to think holistically. Um, they deal with high emotions and crisis situations. Uh, you know, they understand process, you know, so it's like all of a sudden, a lot of the skills that you see in nursing actually transfer really nicely over to the world of cybersecurity and landscape architect are the same. Um, they deal with plants. They deal with um, complex ecosystems. They deal with protection and defense. You know, so it's like when you when you start to kind of see a lot of industries where there there are similarities um, and they do think very similarly, we can start targeting the, um, them and then start cross training them and bringing them into our industry. Uh, but up up until now, we we really haven't been willing to do that. We were taking people who already had kind of a predisposition towards tech. Um, and uh, and trying to retrain them and reskill them. So as an example, bringing uh, network engineers or uh, mm. systems administrators, right? So P and and uh, and cross training them and bringing them into the world of security. But that's not enough. Uh, you know, if we're talking about uh, you know 3.5 million unfilled jobs. Uh, you know, trying to uh, bring more people who are in tech into the world of cybersecurity. That's not going to cut it. We've got to bring people outside of the industry. No, you're absolutely right. And I historically have not come from like a traditional tech background myself. And I mean, this is going back, I don't know, seven or so years ago, which wasn't that long ago. But I still felt that maybe even transitioning into the space, people still, uh, there's a stigma, maybe similar to the nurse, like you're redeploying into the space, like, what do you really know? And that doesn't really help. It doesn't build a camaraderie. Uh, you do feel at the start that oh, can I sustain doing this? Because I don't really know what I'm doing. I do feel like a fish out of water. And so I feel like that sort of ties into the next point around the retention stuff, because I have heard people, I mean, there's there's the female perspective as well, uh, of a lot of women leaving uh, because potentially of mis misogynistic males and what they say, that's one element of it but as well. And I think people perhaps not feeling that there's growth in the space or that I don't feel good enough because again like you I haven't come from a traditional tech background that doesn't mean that I'm not valid in the in the industry and I still feel that people are thinking very old school like that so I know that in the report it sort of mentions 58% of talent were hired by other companies now this happens a lot in Australia we are quite a small nation compared to the US for example 
But mm-hmm. when people are, are sitting there just poaching talent from other companies doesn't really solve the issue, right? So how do you sort of propose that we solve this problem? And do you think I'm being too optimistic and thinking that this problem will just dissipate? Like it's it's quite common uh, in the insights that I was reading in the ISACA report, for example. Um, uh, so I so let me just start off with uh, it is an absolute requirement for all cybersecurity people to be optimistic. <laughs> uh, so no, you are not being uh, too optimistic. If we don't have light at the end of the tunnel, then if this is going to work, uh, you know. So uh, uh, it, it is going to ultimately solve um, be solved, but it can only be solved through diversity. Um, my uh, one of my uh, dear friends, she had this quote, and she says she's actually a landscaper architect and she says monocultures die. And right now uh, in the world of cybersecurity, one of the least diverse uh, industries in the world, we live in a monoculture. And uh, what ends up happening is uh, in monocultures, you end up with groupthink and you keep uh, trying to solve uh, different problems, uh, but the same way. And you figure, well, I'm just going to throw more at it. And none of that ultimately works. So uh, the only way that we're ultimately going to solve this problem is not to continue to uh, have, uh, you know, ultimately uh, poach from ourselves, uh, you know, but to bring in people who think differently, which is what you're going to have to do. Uh, if, if we think about it, technology is being designed, um, it, it's, it's diverse by design. Uh, you know, which means that we have to respond to that by bringing on uh, a more diverse workforce. And if if we also look at it through this lens that, you know, we're in the fourth industrial revolution, which is this interconnection of the physical, the biological and the digital worlds, uh, you know, it means that we're going to be encountering problems in a way that we've never seen before. So you need people who think differently. Um, you need people who look differently, because if we look different, we think differently. We need people who are more di- um, neurodiverse. Uh, you know, to ultimately, uh, you know, help solve this problem. And the only way to do that is to be able to build these training programs um, that that are designed to take people who are not technical um, and retrain them and reskill them in a way so that they can be productive ultimately uh, day one. Uh, you know, but uh, the whole scavenging and, and, and poaching from one company to the other, um, it, it's not sustainable. It's certainly not scalable. Uh, you mm. know, so you can't build 3.5 million, pe- you know, jobs by just, you know, moving, you know, the chessboard from one one place to another. No, I totally agree. So when we speak about, and maybe you can talk on the next the SISO that you're sort of involved in. In my experience, you talk about diversity of thought and diversity. I almost feel I see the eye rolls happen. I also think, now I am making quite a general sort of assumption. It is perhaps from the older generation as well. Uh, I know mm-hmm. even um, I'm uh, technically in the eyes of the in the world, I'm on the younger side of the female. I used to feel that I was judged. It's very different now, but younger as well. Um, and so I guess that they sit here and they say we want diversity, but then almost sort of like begrudgingly don't want to, uh, uh, I guess, invest in that side of things. I've seen it before. Yeah. I've heard it behind closed doors. So there's this... There's this theory of we want diversity, but then they don't really in terms of the reality of it. So I I just want to get your honest thoughts because this is a problem. Uh, People are saying, like, leaders are saying that that's what they want. I believe a lot of them are genuine, but I do believe people are disingenuous when they do speak like that. 
Sure. And that's a fair, that's a fair, um, you know, kind of a, a assessment. Uh, you know, so I, I absolutely, I, I've heard it all, right? Um, you know, that, hey, I want diversity. But then on the flip side, they'll say, well, organizations where everybody thinks a lot move faster. Uh, you know, so uh, and you'll start to hear the generalizations of, um, you know, well, if I'm going if I'm working for a startup, uh, I want to make sure that everybody thinks the same, because if everybody thinks the same, we'll be able to bring the product to market faster. Uh, and and so and and when you have people who think differently, um, of, you know, and challenge uh, the norms and uh, challenge your your pre, you know, your your assumptions and so forth, that adds friction to the process and that is difficult and so i uh, you know um uh, i think again uh you know one of the ways that we deal with that is by um you know as part of these apprenticeship programs you've got to teach people how to navigate politics because you are going to be dealing with um you know on one hand some of the old guard and the old ways of thinking um you know but you're also going to be dealing with people with uh, with with other perceptions and so forth and what you don't want to end up with is this analysis paralysis where you cannot move forward because nobody agrees you know so how do I, you have to teach people, how do I bring, you know, new ideas and new thoughts, but really understanding the political environment in which I'm navigating and how to bring those ideas in a way that I don't stop forward progression, you know, but I ultimately help, you know, people, uh, you know, kind of think of it a different way and, um, you know, and make those leaps. Uh, you know, you cannot innovate without having um, diversity of thought. You just can't, uh, you know. So, um, you know, a, a proper apprenticeship program, a proper boot camp program should be teaching people, you know, how do I how do I navigate that? How do I bring these ideas in a way that I don't necessarily threaten, you know, the, uh, the you know, the, the, the old guard, um, you know, but I do bring um, a new way of thinking. No, absolutely. There's another industry peer and a friend of mine, Shedden Cedric, he's an Australian here, uh, and he's sort of spoken publicly around that like, the next wave of CEOs and leadership is going to fundamentally change what we're seeing today. So would you say that the next wave as well of the people who are sort of retiring now, will we see that shift? Will it become a little easier perhaps because, I mean, I don't know, if I go back to even like the way my parents were working, it's just it's really, really different. There was a book that I read years ago called Manager 2.0, and it just basically talks about how to engage with people from different generations. It's not that they're better or worse, it's just that they're different. And I think that in order to bring in the diversity of thought, what you and I have been speaking about predominantly today, uh, I think that it's going to probably mean perhaps a different generation that think a little differently uh, to, I guess, bring down those barriers and those and those walls. Uh, and I know that is a bit of a general assumption. Not everyone is like that. So I want to caveat saying not everyone is like that. Uh, but I have sort of seen that through the reports that I've read, even through uh, literature that I've read as well. I think that will change. Uh, but again, that's going to take time, right? It is going to take time. And, uh, you know, I, I think with every wave um, you see change, uh, you know, the experience that uh, the boomers brought to the table in terms of leadership and management was very different than, you know, their their parents and Gen X and boomers and, and, and so forth. So uh, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, with the next wave, uh, you know, millennials are already in management positions. And so, you know, with Gen Z coming online, we'll, we'll see, you know, a completely different way of thinking. You know, that stated, there are, um, you know, there are skills uh, that boomers and Gen Z, I'm sorry, Gen X have uh, that the other generations don't. And mm. the reason is that Gen X and boomers were born into a world that was not connected. 
right? Um, we were born into the digital age and where, you know, whereas, uh, you know, millennials were born into this connected age. And so we remember a time, uh, you know, where uh, you you had to pick up a phone to call somebody, right? Um, that we weren't connected, that, you know, and, and the, the skills that you build, the human skills that you build, um, that oftentimes boomers and Gen X has, um, you know, you don't necessarily always see that uh, in some of the younger generations. And so what I would say is that as these new generations start to come online and bring, uh, you know, new diversity of thought and way of doing things, also to understand and learn from those previous generations so that you end up, um, you know, taking the best from those generations and then build something that's new, uh, you know, because it's absolutely critical. Uh, you know, my generation and the generations before have killed ourselves, right? Working ridiculously long hours and the amount of stress that you bring to the table because it's one of the few jobs you're, where your failure can lead to your CEO having to testify in front of Congress. You know, so that amount of stress, mm. um, you know, causes... Uh, you know, and wreaks a lot of havoc, not only on your body, but on your family, mm. right? So the, the devastation that's let, you know, left behind because of all of that has affected, you know, large, you know, families. And, and I'm really hoping that this next generation, that this new wave of leadership is going to say, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and, and look to different ways of dealing with it. No, absolutely. And like I said, this is really just up for discussion. We're not making any assumptions. You know, if you are listening to this, like we're not having a go at you or anything like that. We just really want to put it on the table. We want this conversation to be honest and raw and real so people can get insights from this. So the next thing I want to sort of talk to you about, Janae, is the report also talks through a high percentage of talent who left their roles due to limited promotion and development opportunities. I know myself when I was working a large uh, bank, uh, I often did hear that floating around as well. Like people said, well, this is the role that I'm doing. I've been doing this for a while. Where do I sort of see myself? But no one could really articulate that well. Uh, So what do you think sort of the plan here to try to retain staff? And uh, are organizations even aware that this is a recurring problem or...? Yeah. So organizations are aware that it's a a recurring problem. They're just kind of stuck. And so, um, you know, with this answer, I want to I want to do two things. I want to bring, you know, some and highlight some of the uh, the learnings from the survey. Um, But I also kind of want to talk about some out of the box ways of thinking, you know, to approach how we would ultimately solve this problem. You know, so the uh, the Tech Workforce uh, 2020 survey report uh, indicated that the top reasons that people are leaving positions are they're looking for more interesting work, better compensation, better culture, and more upward mobility, which totally makes sense. Um, that that uh, you know, and um, they showed that employees stay oftentimes because of work li- uh, life balance, the location, interesting work, and ultimately their compensation. And, you know, what to me, when I when I look at, you know, current the current work environment that people are currently in and when they stay, why they stay, uh, you know, I look holistically, how would I ultimately address the problem? And you got a couple of ways of dealing with this. Uh, one is that security leaders need to be arm in arm with their chief people officers. Um, you know, we're really good at tech. You know, we're really good at business, but we don't necessarily, we're not always experts in all things that are human. And we're dealing with very human problems here. And your chief people officers, especially if they're really good, um, really understand this. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we need to do is, is look at our security workforce through the and our security organizations through the lens of these workforce transformation um, initiatives, where we start designing people strategies, um, you know, with or, you know, with uh, uh, experts 
uh, you know, in, in the field. So enter your chief, uh, your chief people officers, you know, but in terms of out of the box, I, I would say one of the things that you can do are engaged design firms. And the reason is, is that design agencies help organizations like reimagine employee, you know, the employee experience. And while oftentimes they tend to focus on more revenue driven organizations like your sales or customer care teams, um, these are organizations that are experts in human centered design. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we can do is we can start engaging these design firms to help us really understand what is the work, what is the digital experience? What is the work um, experience for a cybersecurity, uh, you know, worker? So if you use these user-centered design principles and you start to identify, you know, and focus on some of the areas that we talked about, you know, in the survey, you know, so areas like why do your staff depart? Why do they stay? How do they advance? How do we keep compensation in line? Um, you know, they're going to uncover that, but they're also going to uncover areas of friction and tension, you know, things that don't oftentimes get brought to the forefront, areas like context switching. You know, so if you look at a forensics person or a defense person, they'll have 100 apps running trying to correlate data across multiple systems and the context switching, it, you know, and the cognitive yeah. overload that happens as a result Does of that. Oh, it does. It does. To the point where you have to kind of pull yourself away um, and your heart is racing. You know, there is a physical manifestation as a result of context switching and it it runs rampant across the cybersecurity industry. And, and part of that is because we, you know, security people were not trained, um, you know, traditionally in design or design thinking or design principles. And so when you look at our systems, you know, and our, you know, the experience that comprises, you know, the, the cybersecurity experience, it's oftentimes I use the correlation of the Borg, you know, where it's just these, you know, additive systems to solve these problems, but we never kind of take the step back to look at things through the lens of what the most important person, you know, in this ecosystem, and that's the security person, you know. So by doing this approach, by engaging design firms to ultimately help us solve these problems, we can actually bring some new concepts, some concepts that are traditional to design, but not so common in terms of the world of cybersecurity. Things like user journey maps or empathy maps, how do you feel when you're using this system and doing this thing at this point in time? You know, and if you do those types of things as well, you actually can result in in uh, redesigning and rearchitecting your systems in such a way, um, you know, that it allows you to accomplish your task, but in a way where it doesn't have quite the neural load and the increased amount of stress. So one is engage your chief people officer, look at what does a workforce transformation strategy look like for a cybersecurity workforce and an out of the way you know, kind of like out of the box thinking way of, of accomplishing that um, is looking at engaging a design firm to help you accomplish that. I guess also what you're saying is if people are feeling that their employer is actually listening to them by doing the surveys, like how do you feel when you use the system? It's probably automatically going to send signals uh, to employees by saying my employer genuinely cares about me. They want the best for me. They're actually trying to improve my experience of working here as well. So I guess even that, uh, I mean, I've worked in companies before where no one did nothing like that. And you sort of feel really not cared about, I guess. And I think that perhaps that was a, a, a sole reason as to may, maybe because I moved on. I mean, I don't know, but perhaps because I didn't feel heard and I didn't feel that people was taking a genuine interest to make my work environment better perhaps as well. 
Yes. Um, the tricky part about things like surveys is that if you don't follow them up with meaningful action, um, then it's worse than if you didn't, if you did the survey in the, the beginning, you know, if you did, uh, then just not doing the survey. And the reason is, is that, well, I took your insight, but then I did nothing with mm. it. And so there's, right. And so there's this drop in um, enthusiasm and morale as a result of it. And a lot of companies get stuck in that, um, you know, so that's where design thinking actually comes into play. And that is, I get your insights. I look at, you know, different things like low hanging fruit that I can do to try and, you know, ultimately help my people. Um, and I prototype and I pilot, you know, and you train, you experiment and you innovate and you try, you know, little things, but just things where it's like people can, um, you're taking my insights. Um, and not only are you doing something, but there's this demonstrably measurable impact as a result of you doing things. So it's, it's absolutely critical that, you know, you don't have these, um, you know, strategies, uh, you know, that where I, I you know, I, I publish the strategy. I say we're going to do all of these things. I get your insights and stuff. But then at the end of the day, my life hasn't changed. I'm still working, you know, 120 hours a week. Um, I'm still super stressed and I still feel like you don't care. Mm, all talk, no walk, right? No level of integrity. Yeah. I have to follow it up with meaningful action. 100%. I love that. Absolutely. I want to get into now the education side of things. This is really interesting. So, okay, when I was reading the report, I was reading that they spoke, there was a whole section on the university degrees versus training courses, etc. And the report specified that hands-on training was more important than a formal qualification. That was one of the insights. But then it mentioned that 58% of respondents said that they required their applicants to have a university qualification to fill not a senior role, an entry-level cyber position. So, wait, what? Can you make sense of that? That just... Have I read it wrong? No, no, you read it right, and it's it's because we're at this inflection point in the uh, uh, in in our evolution in the world of cybersecurity. You know, so the industry has been stuck in these old hiring practices that ultimately prioritize uh, university degrees, uh, even though, like you mentioned in the survey, uh, prior experience, I think it was like 95 percent, uh, you know, of the uh, the respondents said that it, it's more important to have hands on um, uh, hands on experience. And, uh, you know, so I, I would say couple things. One is we mentioned before, we are not a diverse industry, which means that we tend to hold on to older ways of thinking, believing that if we just do more of the same, then we'll ultimately solve the problem. You know, so, uh, uh, you know, I think, I think, you know, especially amongst, you know, certain generations, uh, we were taught it was, you know, banged into us that a university degree was absolutely critical in order to move forward. Um, you know, but the problem is, is a couple of things. One is, uh, that when you look that technology moves incredibly fast right now, right? So um, within 18 months, you know, the things that I learned today are, you know, are deprecated uh, and, and no longer Your skills valid. atrophy though um, and, as well. Like my skills have atrophied. That was only like seven years ago. So... Uh, they do. They do, which means you have to constantly stay on top of it. And if I'm spending four years in college and I'm learning, you know, a certain tech, that tech may be old by the time I get, you know, out of out of school. Um, you know, the other is, is that, you know, and I'm going to, you know, put it out there to colleges, you know, they've, they've struggled to differentiate themselves from the knowledge that you gain as part of being in part of a collegiate program versus the knowledge that you actually gain from on the job training. 
And so it's the the college, you know, so and that's, I think, where the tension is, is that I've been taught as a leader that uh, it is important to hire people with college degrees. But when I look at the people who are coming to me and people who don't have college degrees, but have hands on experience, do very, very well with inside the, the corporations. And so uh, and that's where you're start, you're seeing the tension. And, you know, ultimately some of the recalibration that needs to happen, you know, so colleges uh, have to uh, differentiate themselves from the knowledge that I gain as part of, uh, you know, being in, in the school, um, you know, from the knowledge that I gain as part of, you know, on the job training. So they, ha they have to do that and they have to be able to uh, train people rapidly. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, meaning sh that the skills that I ultimately learn um, are skills that I'll be able to apply, um, you know, with an over indexing, quite frankly, on something that on the job training programs may not be the best for. And that's your human skills. Uh, you know, we don't talk about this a lot, but there's this concept called the augmented workforce. And, you know, what that means is, is that with the advent of, uh, you know, combination of both artificial intelligence and automation, uh, you're going to be working alongside a digital assistant. Right. It doesn't make sense for humans to keep doing, you know, these rote, simple activities over and over again when a digital assistant can, mm. you know, can do it. And right. And so if I'm working alongside, uh, you know, a virtual assistant, then the skills that were important today aren't necessarily skills that are important tomorrow. My human skills become more important. And so, uh, uh, you know. Colleges, uh, you know, may want to also look in, in, in terms of over indexing on human skills to, you know, to ultimately help. But, you know, strong partnerships with apprenticeship programs and so forth and, and, and companies to make sure that, you know, not just your senior year, but almost at the freshman year level, you know, that people are, are starting to work inside companies. Um, and that's, I think, where you start to see the, the breakdown. But I mean, look, uh, Google came out recently and said, uh, you know, that uh, college degrees aren't necessarily the defining factor, you know, for whether or not somebody's going to be successful. And in a world where, you know, so much knowledge is at my fingertips, right? Mm. When you look at the amount of online information that I can get, uh, you know, colleges have to be able to deliver something that's patently different. And so I think that's the tension that you're ultimately seeing. I guess the other thing is as well, you can't really determine someone's human skills on a piece of paper, right? So I don't have any college degree. I mean, now it's probably changing. I'm looking to go and do a master's and all that type of stuff just in terms of credibility. Uh, but for me, I didn't have any of that. So on paper, I mean, I haven't applied for a job for a long time, but if I did, I'd probably look pretty bad. But as soon as I get in front of someone, it changes. And I've even heard like back in the day, recruiters saying like, no, you've got to speak to this chick. Like she's really good. And so then I can see the conversation change, right? But on paper, I look terrible. So if you look at a, and you, you mentioned the word, uh, you know, recalibrate. So maybe in talent acquisition functions in large corporations, they need to look at that. Like we're going to abolish. You don't need a university degree, so to speak, because a lot of them as well use automation to just sort of uh, to, to detect whether someone's got a degree. And then people who don't are sort of just automatically like thrown out of the whole recruitment process, right? And so I think that that's 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 always that could be a problem. So I'm gonna have a university degree, but not be very knowledgeable or have any sort of intelligence behind them as well. So I think it's really hard that we're sort of defining people straight off the bat on a piece of paper, which in some cases people completely make up anyway. So it's falsified. <laughs> yes. And, and, and here's what I would say, you know, on the flip side, in terms of, you know, people who uh, don't necessarily have, uh, let's say, the education 
you know, that, uh, you know, a degree, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Um, there are other ways to get that experience onto uh, your resume so that until the systems catch up and are able to look at what your capabilities are versus what this piece of paper says, um, are things like um, doing projects on the side. Uh, you know, so almost there, uh, almost uh, anything, right? In the world of cybersecurity, I can do a side project on, you know, so uh, coordinating with different groups, coming up with, uh, you know, real challenges to ultimately solve that can demonstrate my technical skills or, uh, you know, my specific skills um, are ways to be able to get that experience onto your resume so that you can um, at least get in front of people uh, and, and not have the degree be that that defining factor. The other thing is, is that I am starting to see more and more jobs say, uh, you know, college experience or equivalent work experience. So I have definitely seen a dramatic increase from there. Uh, so I think that change is already happening. It may not be happening fast enough, but certainly if you start looking on LinkedIn and start looking at the jobs, you'll start to see more jobs say, uh, you know, uh, equivalent experience. I think also that from what you're saying, there probably needs to be some training or upskill around how to actually interview people as well. Uh, not just following some stock standard script that was developed in the 80s. I think un like un asking people questions because you can get a little bit of insight about their personality, how they handle things as well, um, and, and how they would approach certain things. I think if you ask things a certain way, you can derive those answers out of people without asking it so directly. But I think there needs to be a bit of a shift on that front as well, like educating managers or talent acquisition managers as well, because I often do see a disconnect talent acquisition managers completely sending CVs for people that aren't qualified for the jobs because they don't have necessarily that comprehensive understanding of what that analyst may may need in terms of skill set or what they're looking for. So I've actually seen a lot of uh, internal conflict as well because you have to go through them, you got to follow their process, you know, it's their talent acquisition function. And if you start going around them, in my experience, it doesn't uh, go too well. But I just used to find that the people that they would send is like, well, that's not really what I'm looking for. It's completely the opposite of the person that I asked for. And that's probably not their fault because they're not cyber people, right? They're talent acquisition people. So there needs to be really more of an alignment against the cyber team than the talent acquisition to get the right people in so we can interview the right people. And, and so, and I'd, I'd love to, to, you know, continue on with that. So, uh, you know, you do have, certainly have a problem in that many people aren't taught how to interview. Uh, you know, both in in human resources and uh, and and recruiting functions, as as well as certainly in the world of cybersecurity. Uh, you know, so I, I think you've got that problem. I think the other thing is is that uh, you know, looking at people through the lens of what they're capable of doing, right? You know, so looking at the way that they think. Um, you know, looking at uh, again backgrounds that are non-traditional, but when you take away uh, the name of the position and you actually look at the work that they were doing, there's correlations, you know, to the world of cybersecurity that are very interesting. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe that there's going to be a movement, you know, towards training people to look at like what are you capable of doing, you know, versus, uh, you know, do I have a CV that ultimately checks all of the boxes? Um, you know, I think that's that's something that. We're, we're certainly starting to, uh, to, to see. So uh, it, it goes back to diversity, though. The, you know, all of what we're talking about here, we are seeing the same record playing over and over again, right? So 
talent acquisition people who are, you know, looking for, uh, you know, the, these unicorns that don't exist and, uh, you know, cybersecurity people that are writing job descriptions for people that don't exist um, is a replay of a record that we've been doing for the last 20 years. And the only way to break that um, is to bring in people who think differently. And if you bring in people who did not come through those traditional backgrounds and they're in leadership positions or they're in ta talent acquisition um, positions, then they're going to hire people that are similar to them. Right. They're going to look at they're going to hire people that think outside of the box. Right. So um, you only need a couple in order to be able to affect that type of change in an organization. But um, diversity, diversity, diversity is is the absolute key. Mm, I love that. I love that as well. I think that that's something that hopefully the movers and shakers are going to start leading the way in this space. Another insight that's really interesting, touching on, again, the formal education side of things, was that what extent do people uh, – so there was an insight saying what do, what extent do people agree or disagree that recent university graduates in cybersecurity are well prepared for the cybersecurity challenges in their organization? But then the follow-up insight was 40% neither agreed or disagreed on the confidence derived from uni degrees. So talk me through this. <laughs> and secondly – uh, as employers are claiming they want talent who have degrees as specified earlier, but then they don't have strong confidence in the degrees that they already hold anyway. So what's like, what's the reality? Like what's, what does that even mean? <laughs> I think it's evidence of the groupthink problem that we, we talked about uh, earlier, that uh, senior leadership, people who are in senior leadership positions, it was just, it was taught, right? It was banged into you, college, 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 college. So that's really hard, right, to divorce yourself from when that was something that you were probably taught from a very, very young age. Um, but at the same time, you also uh, look at the proof is in the pudding, right? So you look at your own organizations and you look at people who have degrees um, and you look at people who don't have degrees. Uh, and um, and if the skill sets are similar, right, if the, the work product and the productivity is similar, then you have to start kind of asking yourself, well, does it really matter? And I think that that contention um, is and and that friction is what people are ultimately struggling with right now. And so, uh, and again, if your organization is comprised of people just like you at the leadership level, you're going to have this group think, and you don't have anybody that can challenge the assumption to say, well, why don't we just start hiring people? And it does like if you if you have a degree, that's great. If you don't have a degree, that's great. You know, why don't we start looking at people, you know, through a different lens um, and and really change our hiring practices, the interviewing practices, as you mentioned before. You know, as an example, uh, you know, there are some interviewing practices that take people's names off, uh, you know, that we don't see pictures of that. You know, we we start to actually interview people. Uh, we In fact, I've seen companies where they um, the hiring authority doesn't get to see the resume. Uh, that uh, you have just a quick write-up on the person and you have to do an interview based on that person's capabilities, not necessarily of what you see on the paper. So you start taking away mm. the things that, you know, that, that um, you know, have bias mm. as part of the hiring process. Um, and, uh, right, you start to kind of like remove that. But yeah, ultimately, you know, the contention that you're seeing, the reason that you're seeing, um, you know, people say, yes, I want degrees, but on the other saying, uh, but, you know, I'm not really seeing any demonstrable, uh, you know, uh, impact because of that uh, is is because of you know the era from which we've come, um, and uh, you know that the world of yesterday is not the world of today, 
And the way we solved problems yesterday simply isn't going to work in a world that no longer exists. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think I'm a bit of a fan of the underdog. I definitely would say I was a bit of an underdog back in the day as well. So I probably used to get overlooked. But yeah, I like that the write-up and then you have to go in there and you see the person for who they are, not what they are, whether they come from some fancy college or some fancy area. I think that that doesn't determine someone's capability. Um, and I think people that potentially have come from that underdog background have actually outperformed people. There's a book that I read recently. It was called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And it really does go into a lot of this and how people with fixed mindsets, how they operate. And then people with more of a growth mindset on on how that because of their mindset that they just could um, overcome a lot of their obstacles and just smash it. And it speaks about athletes and all this type of stuff. Like it's really interesting. And I think that that similar, that similar approach needs to be applied to how we look at cybersecurity practitioners, because at the end of the day, they are people. And I think that we need to look beyond just that piece of paper. And I think that we will, uh, uh, like you said, looking at the diversity side of things. And I've spoken about this publicly as well, just to mention that, Cyber criminals, they don't have university degrees. They don't have a structured way of thinking, right? So we need to get people from unstructured backgrounds, like you're saying, the nurse or whoever it may be, that has a different way of thinking and operating because that's what we need. If you have everyone from the same pedigree, as you mentioned, like we're not going to have the um, the depth and the breadth that we, ha- that we have or potentially could have uh, with hiring people from different backgrounds and different skill sets. And and not only, the other thing is as well, if you have people that think differently, sometimes, and I have been in this situation before, you almost get ostracized from the other people that think the same, right? So that's, that's hard to combat yeah. that as well. Even though you are thinking differently, you want to be outside the box, but then people, they think differently of you because you're not thinking like them as well. How would you sort of overcome that challenge? So, and I want to kind of look at this two different ways, and that is one is, uh, you know, through the lens of that person who is different in an organization where everybody thinks the same, you know, versus how do you solve the problem? And that's, you don't want that one person who thinks differently to be the only person in that organization. You know, the idea is, is you want as much diversity as, as you ultimately can, um, because the problems that you're trying to solve are very diverse and complex and require people who think outside of the box. Uh, you know, so if you find yourself as that one person who thinks differently, uh, you know, then, you know, that one, that one is tough and you actually have to kind of lean on um, a political savviness of understanding, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, how do I how do I deliver my message and my idea um, in a way that is digestible by the people around me? Right. So if I'm constantly uh, challenging the status quo, um, then people aren't going to listen to what I have to say. Um, But if I understand the way the machine works, Um, And I understand how to get my, and innovation teams deal with this all the time. How do I get my idea in a way that works inside of this machine? Um, You know, those are the type of skills that you're going to have to be able to build up so that you can get your, your, your kind of the way that you think and your ideas, um, you know, uh, uh, listen to, um, you know, as, as averse to oftentimes what ends up, uh, you know, people end up thinking about people who think um, differently is that, you know, you're flying the wheel, you're slowing us down, Mm. you just like to complain and, and, and so forth. So you've got to be more politically savvy if you're the only one. Um, But again, the way to solve that um, is, is, 
to have organizations that are not just diverse, but know how to deal with difference of thought. Because I will say, when you have an organization of people who think differently, it, it, it you know, it does slow things down a little bit. Uh, you know, because oftentimes they're raising red flags <laughs> to say, wait a minute, um, you know, or, or you know, so, uh, you know, you, you do have to kind of build a culture that understands how to deal with and, and navigate, um, you know, a, a, a more diverse way of thinking. You know, so, again, that's a, peop- a chief people officer can kind of help you do that, um, you know, but, uh, yeah, your organization has to be diverse in order to be able to handle that. And if you're the only one, um, you have to be politically savvy. Otherwise, it's not going to work um, because at the end of the day, you have to be you have to understand your culture, you know, the culture of the environment in which you work. And so uh, you have to understand how to deliver that message. Oh, my gosh. I think I've definitely attributed to companies being slowed, <laughs> slowed down yeah. because I had that different way of thinking. But in light of <laughs> all of these statistics, now, I know that I've really appreciated your thoughts as well. You're being really tangible you've given like one two three sort of this is what you've got to do so i do hope people listening can take some of janae's thoughts away uh i just want to sort of just summarize our whole chat like because this is an executive podcast and people perhaps may or may not know what to do so let's just make it really easy like three top things that executives can do uh who are looking to recruit and retain talent as well as upskill what would be your advice so only three things (laughs) <laughs> I'll figure out how to do this so that they're not big uh, run-on okay, uh, sentences. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So uh, one of the things that, you know, an organization can do um, is is ultimately tackle this problem through strong partnerships, coalitions, outreach programs, and building strong relationships with apprenticeship programs. You know, so uh, uh, working with programs that are trying to bring people, uh, you know, from non-technical backgrounds into the world of cybersecurity, helping those apprenticeships understand uh, how to under, you know, how to understand your culture in your ways of doing things so that they can ultimately upskill and get people uh, ready for tomorrow, um, ready for uh, working in your environment. So I think that's one. Uh, two is, uh, I, I'm going to hold to this one, engaging a design company to ultimately help you build out your workforce transformation strategy. Uh, they are experts at helping you think outside of the box and looking at ways to ultimately solve the problem in a way that works for your company and your company's culture. Uh, and let's see, what would I do in terms of three? Um, you know, internal, look internal. So identify entry level staff, uh, you know, inside of your companies, uh, you know, employees or other people that are both in tech and non-technical roles and look at them for opportunities to ultimately upskill, um, and bring them into the world of cybersecurity. One of the things that's really nice about that is you actually kind of get two for the price of one because they understand the culture. They understand the way that things work, but they're also going to be out of the box thinkers. And so they'll bring a level of diversity into your organization. So look inward. I love all of those. I really appreciate it, Janae. I really loved your energy, your thoughts, your diverse way of thinking as well. And just your honest approach, right? Like we want to cut through the noise. We want to give people real answers, not the airy, fairy, politically correct answer. I think you've cut through that. You've given us really raw and real responses to problems that do exist. We are going to drop the report uh, in the show notes so you can download that through Osaka. Uh, And Janae, really appreciate your time. Just lastly, if people perhaps have a question that I did not ask you today, even though I asked you about like 75, how can they go about getting into contact with you? 
Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, there's there's two main ways of uh, getting a hold of me. Uh, you can find me uh, on Tyro Security. Uh, I'm on their website uh, under their Virtual Chief Information Security Officer Services. Um, but the best way is under LinkedIn. And so if you just go to linkedin.com slash IN slash my name, which is Janai Marinkovich, J-E-N-A-I-M-A-R-I-N-K-O-V-I-C, um, and reach out to me there. I will get back to you. Well, thank you so much again. It was awesome to talk to you and I can't wait to get you back. Right on. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you um, and, uh, and your audience. Thanks for tuning in to KB Cast, the cybersecurity podcast for executives. We always value your support and would love it if you could leave us a review or a comment on your platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play. And that's always appreciated. Till next time.